So what does wellness mean to you? Welcome to Wellness Wednesdays. I am your host, Eric Clark. This week, another special guest. We had him on a few weeks ago, a, uh, an author, journalist, runner, and um, we'll give you a little bit of update on, on what we can call him these days. Welcome back to the podcast, Alex Hutchison. Thanks, Eric. It's, uh, it's great to be back. And um, uh, well, now we can say your book is out. It's doing very well. We can now even call you New York Times bestselling author, Alex Hutchison. Congratulations. <laughs> Uh, thanks. I, I, I like the sound of that. That's uh, it's it's uh, music to my ears. Yeah. That's it. It's it's a pretty cool uh, accomplishment. I'm sure when you started uh, your career, which we we kind of got into a little bit last time, that's probably not what the first thing that came to mind. I mean, it's one of those dreams. It's kind of like when you're a kid playing street hockey, you want to score the winning goal in the uh, the Stanley Cup, but to actually think that it's it's doable, it's, it's something a little different. Yeah, that, this is definitely it's one of those like. Uh, uh, you know, those long-term career things, which you think, wouldn't it be cool to someday do that? And so, uh, you know, honestly, um, it's really easy. One of the things I learned from running is that you, uh, whenever you achieve a goal, by the time you achieve it, you've already reset your goals. You're already thinking, okay, I ran this time, but I think I can run that time and I want to get faster. And sometimes you, you forget to, uh, enjoy the, the, the moments as they come. So I'm trying to, trying to, you know, remind myself, this is, uh, it's really exciting to have, written a book that has reached enough people to, to get that, uh, that, that title of, of bestseller. So I'm, I am excited. I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying that aspect of it. Well, hopefully it's going to be a story that we will tell your kids and your grandkids that I back in the day, I was a, a New York Times bestselling author. So. Well, I'm, I'm hoping it'll be the opposite. It'll be like back in the day, I only had one New York Times bestseller. Can you yeah. believe it? Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Um, for those who don't know, the book we're talking about is called Endure. Um, I'm sure Alex can give us the, the subtitles. I'm, I'm not that great with subtitles because they're usually very long and I know that in the industry it's not usually that writes them. It's, it's the, it's the publishing house. But, uh, can you give us the full subtitle? Yeah, the book is called Endure Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. So before we get into book, uh, to the book and we're really going to kind of, uh, do a deep dive into it, I just have one question that's really, that's book related. How did you get Malcolm Gladwell to uh, to write a forward on it? <laughs> That's my uh, my my trade secret. Yeah. Um, the, the, the the real secret is Malcolm Gladwell is an amazing runner, uh, and you know he was an offsa an Ontario high school champion in his uh, in his youth at 1500 meters, and now in his 50s he still runs pretty close to about a five minute mile. And he's not just an amazing runner; he's a he's a, a big running fan. He uh, he reads all the, the the running message boards and and follows the sport very closely. So he, I was fortunate enough that because I was writing a lot about running and the science of running in places like Runner's World, he had come across my work. Um, and and in fact, the, at one point, uh, and this was maybe three three four years ago, I actually wrote some stuff strongly critical of. He wrote something in the New Yorker about. Uh, about performance enhancing drugs in sport. And I, I kind of took him on, uh, and, and said, I wrote something disagreeing with what he wrote and he got in touch with me via email and, uh, not, not in an angry way, but just wanting to kind of chat about things and, and sort of bounce ideas around about this topic. And, and we did that. And that was, I found that really, uh, kind of interesting and refreshing that his response to, to criticism was to say, Oh, tell me more. That's interesting. 
Um, and so we kind of kept in touch by email over the years. And at one point when he was in Toronto giving a talk, we, we got out for a run together. He came and joined my, uh, my weekly Saturday morning tempo run. So, you know, uh, he, he it, it, it was still an enormously, uh, sort of, uh, swinging for the fences, uh, uh, hopeful shot in the dark to ask him if he'd be willing to, to write a short blurb or even a short forward for the book. Um, and, uh, you know, he would to a guy like Malcolm Gladwell. I can't even begin to imagine how many requests like that he must get. But he was he was extremely kind and gracious and and wrote didn't just write me a blur, wrote me a, a lovely forward, um, you know, for for which I'm extremely grateful and and which I think really sets the stage for the for the book really well. That's 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 pretty that's pretty cool in itself. Uh, and I mean that and uh, some of the accolades you've been getting. It's it's I hope you're really taking it all in and enjoying some of this stuff. Um, and you're right, like it is, I mean, I, I don't know him, obviously I'm not in your circle, but, uh, I've read a bunch of his stuff and he, I think it's the Canadian in him. He's, seems like a nice guy and, and I think he'd be open to a debate as opposed to, uh, a lot of like the, what people call a debate of just yelling louder and, 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 and slower and, and getting their words out. But it seems like he's, uh, yeah, if you listen to his pod, he has a podcast uh, called Revisionist History, and the kind of tagline is, you know, reasonable minds can and probably will differ. So understanding that there's different perspectives on things and that, you know, one of the things he at one point in one of our conversations, he, he I, I we were talking a couple of years after the initial drug conversation, the, 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 the topic of performance enhancing drugs came up and he was saying, you know, his 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 views had kind of shifted since he wrote that article and he said you know maybe i don't know if it's a bug or a feature but i change my opinions when i get new information and it's like huh that's a kind of refreshing idea that if if you learn something new about a topic it, it should change your conclusions and i think you know a lot of us are, are naturally wired or most of us are naturally wired to uh, if we hold an opinion and then some new information comes out that challenges that opinion we find try to find ways of discrediting that new information or ignoring it and we just uh, we are we form our conclusions and we we seek out evidence that bolsters our conclusions instead of instead of evaluating the evidence that may undermine them so you know it's it's a good trait to be able to change your mind if if uh, if someone gives you a good argument yeah good old confirmation bias it gets us all uh almost probably on a daily basis but it's um you're right like i I've been trying to stay open-minded on, on some of the topics, and sometimes it's tough. It's uh, it's it. We we're wired in a in a different way to kind of survive. But now in this day and age, we you know whether we release something, it's probably not going to kill us. But uh, it's uh, it's a it's a really tough thing to to uh, to wrestle sometimes. Yeah, you know, I would say the biggest mistake is not to have confirmation bias because we all do the big the biggest mistake is to believe that you're somehow immune to it i mean we, we all have it i definitely have it and i well the best i can do i can't you know if i'm writing about controversial topics and i wrote i wrote for the globe last week about uh different kinds of diets you know low carb versus low fat diets which is something people get really really uh you know worked up about and i can't claim that i have no you know bias there because i eat so I, I eat a, a relatively, you know, I do not eat a low carb diet. So I have, I have, of, of course, I'm kind of probably more open to, to research that seems to support my, what the decisions that I've taken. And so I, I can't eliminate that. I, the best thing I can do is to be, just be aware of it, to make sure that I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm seeing the world through my own particular, particular lens. Uh, and so I can try and avoid being too cocksure of, of myself or, or putting too much weight into the evidence that supports my views. 
that's well put. I think we, we can all uh, aspire to be a little better at that, and I think it's something that will, will challenge us for a while. Um, to get into some of the confirmation bias stuff, how did this book come about? Yeah, it, well, it has a long, a long history. It, you know, I don't know how far back to go. Uh, it, it, ultimately, you know, I was a, a competitive runner through high school and university and beyond, and so in some sense, my interest in endurance uh, and in the limits of endurance goes goes right back to those days and to the experience of of trying to see how hard I could push and how far I could go, and trying to understand what it was that held me back when I reached my limits and whether there was ways of changing those limits and you know when I was ready to sort of move on from high level sport had i achieved everything that i possibly could had i hit my ultimate limits or was there more on the table that i just hadn't been able to access so all those questions have you know always been something i've been curious about but in a more so the more recent history of the book is well semi recent is um i you know i started out in journalism in about 2005 2006 and pretty quickly i started gravitating towards writing about endurance uh, endurance sports, and in particular, the kind of the science of endurance. And sometime around then is when I start, first started encountering this body of research that was it's most closely associated with a guy named Tim Noakes in South Africa, a scientist who who came up with this proposal that you know really limits aren't dictated by your muscles or your heart. It's your brain that 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 decides. You know, you don't you don't hit a muscular limit. Your brain. Per, keeps you stops you before you ever hit those limits for 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 your own safety and those sorts of ideas caught my kind of caught my attention because they they really and in, 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 as opposed to the sort of traditional view that you know you slow down because lactic acid is boiling in your muscles or or, or because you can't get enough oxygen this I, this idea that the brain played a key role and and sometimes involuntarily held you back even when you could go faster it, it it's kind of felt consistent with with my experience as a runner and with those you know with those findings that some days you can run better than others you know you, your your physical your body hasn't changed but you some you have good mental days and bad mental days and so i just got really interested in that and i started digging into that research and by about 2009 i had decided i was going to write this book and i was i was get, getting in touch with people and doing interviews and saying i'm writing a book on the limits of endurance and can i come and visit your lab and so on and that's you know so that's nine years ago now Omar almost nine years ago. Um, in the intervening time, I wasn't working on the book full time, but I was I was focusing my journalism, my my magazine and newspaper writing on this topic as a way of digging deeper and deeper. And the more I did that, the more I found that it was more complicated. So I, th I initially I thought I was going to write a book on how you know physical limits are all in your head, that it's 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 you know it's all in your brain, and and, and this is the radical new science of endurance. Um, in reality, as, as I got, got into the literature, it turned out to be much more complicated and nuanced, and it's not clear exactly what role the brain plays, and there's a mix of you know physical and mental factors. And so I ended up, you know, it ended up taking me a long time. It ended up being a feat of endurance to just keep digging and digging and digging deeper until I had a sense that I, that first of all, I realized I wasn't going to get the final answer. I wasn't going to be able to write the, th the three-sentence version of here is what the limits of endurance are, but I felt like I had a, a, enough of a handle on the field to be able to give us a sense to give readers a sense of here's what we know right now about when 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 is it your body holding you back when is it your brain holding you back how do some of these things uh you know mix together in different circumstances it's almost like weights and cardio which should come first it's it's not an easy answer right like it's uh 
um, it's these are I mean there's reason why it's not clear because well first of all it's not easy and we're still learning more every every day every week every year but um, I think it also differs for the average person yeah and for each individual person in, in, in each in each circumstance there there, there are times I, I have reached limits that 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 uh, that seem mostly physical. I've I've run myself to to the point of collapse very very rarely. You know, a couple times in my in my you know multi decade career, and there are other times when it's uh, you know it's clear that your your head has been holding you back, and uh, you know it's it's kind of a for me it's almost a cliche in that anytime anyone asks me a tough question, my answer is like, well, I think it's a little bit of both, um, but that you know when it, for complex topics that it almost always is the case you know if there's a big debate between a and b if it if it really was all a you wouldn't have people arguing about it it would be yeah. clear that the fact that people are arguing between a and b suggests that there's probably a little bit of a and a little bit of b yeah you bring up a good point i mean for with respect to the, the brain or, or the body i mean anyone's done a, uh, an endurance race but even if it's something as short as uh as a 5k or uh, a marathon or an iron man they know that like uh, you know, it's tough, it's long, it's, it's a roller coaster ride, but near the end, when there's five, ten, a thousand people cheering, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I've got tons of energy, and you're spring to the finish line after like a 12 hour race. You're like, where was all this energy before? So it just shows you that the brain is, uh, is, is definitely part of the equation. Yeah, it's, it, that's one of the sort of, you know, you, 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 Intuitively, you might say, well, that sounds like you didn't pace yourself very well. You had energy left at the end. You just didn't push hard enough. But then you start looking into the data, like some of the stuff that I, I, I talk about in the book, and you see that, oh, actually, even world record holders, almost uniformly, they always manage to speak at speed up at the end. So the greatest runners on the greatest day of their lives, they also have this finishing kick. So it's hard to call that a pacing error. Uh, that seems to be something that's more hardwired into the way we manage endurance efforts and so that yeah like you said i think it, it, it's a bit of a smoking gun in terms of the brain holding back some reserve uh that that you can't access necessarily just just because you want to that it's 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 hard to overcome that protective instinct so uh during your research which i guess is almost a decade long uh what's been some of the interesting tidbits or experiments or any anything that you've come across that uh Either made a book or might have not made a book that you're like, wow, this is this is pretty cool. Yeah, it, you know, so like I said, I, I I start from a running background, so I, you know, the te the temptation was to make it all about running and 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 do look look at research on running, but as I as I sort of started to understand endurance more, I kind of broadened the the scope to understand that endurance is very that since if endurance is in the head, then you realize that it's actually very much the same what you know in running in you know other sports and also in like studying for an exam or or or, or something like that 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 it's the way i end up defining endurance is the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop which is a very general thing so anyway as a result i was looking at a bunch of areas that i uh, have less familiarity with so the one that that i think surprised me the most was probably looking at free diving and, and extreme breath holding so you know, when we think of running and any sort of endurance exercises, like we're limited by how much oxygen we can get, right? You know, you're panting as hard as you can. So I couldn't get enough oxygen to go faster. It's like, is that really true? Were you really running out of oxygen? Well, how, you know, 
how how long can the body go without oxygen? So that's why I start, that's how I sort of decided to look into that. And it, it was absolutely mind blowing to me that uh, the you know the record for breath holding is 11 minutes and 35 seconds. Wow. And that's not there, there's you know there's some tricks. There's there's like you can hold, people can hold a, you know twice that long if you breathe pure oxygen beforehand. That's what David Blaine did uh, in one of his stunts is breathing pure oxygen beforehand. Uh, but that's even if you don't do that, you just do, you know, totally naturally 11 minutes, 35 seconds. And I had a chance actually just after the book was published, I had a chance to chat with a guy named Brandon Hendrickson, who's the North American record holder for breath holding his, his records, eight minutes and 35 seconds. And to get him to kind of take me through moment by moment, what the breath hold was like for him. And what was interesting to me is that when you hold your breath, you, you first hit this apparent limit where your, your breathing muscles start contracting involuntarily. So it's like your, your body has decided this is your physical limit. And that happens because your carbon dioxide levels get too high in the blood. It's not because you're out of oxygen. So if you're, most of us, you know, you can't ignore that. Your, your, your muscles are just contracting. They're forcing you to breathe. But if you learn to ignore, to kind of suppress that or ignore that, you can just, the, the muscles contract, but you don't open your mouth. You don't breathe then uh, you can you can keep going until you actually do run out of oxygen so that there's a, a it's like a clear example of the difference between the the brain's warning signs and the actual physical limits and so what this guy Brandon Hendrickson told me is for him and like it, he's pretty typical is the the involuntary breathing movements start after you know a little bit after 4 minutes but then you end up go he's still able to hold his breath for 8 minutes so there's like a factor of two difference between what seems like a physical limit and what the actual physical limit was. So that's something I always kind of, I, 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 I've been pulling that fact out at, you know, cocktail parties ever since. Not that I go to a lot of cocktail parties, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's like, hey, you know, if there's a lull in the conversation, I'm like, hey, does anybody know what the record for breath holding is? Because if you don't, I'm going to tell you and I'm yeah. going to give you a 20 minute lecture afterwards on, on why that is, because I think it's pretty cool. And you you juggle too uh, while you're doing this, or uh, <laughs> yeah 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 I, I I can juggle three balls. My my four year old thinks it's pretty cool. Uh, no, that's awesome. And again, it's one of those things that um, if you're in the breath holding you know uh, sphere in the world, like and you kind of know where all these these are fairly you know polished athletes. And but if you don't know, like you you know most of us, I think. I mean, I've been working on some stuff, some Wim Hof uh, method stuff, so I can hold my breath for probably just over a minute, um, which for me is, I think is very good. But again, obviously I'm, I'm way off the, the world record, but the average person I think can probably, especially if they don't breathe very well, they probably 30 seconds and they're, you know, they start hy hyperventilating. So it's that uh, just shows you how like the world-class people are, are very, I mean, they obviously work their craft, but they're also far off from the average Joe's. Yeah. And, and to me, what's interesting is like one of the things I asked is like, so do you have like enormous lungs? Is, is that the secret? And it's like, yeah, the best free divers and the best breath holders do have larger than normal lungs, probably from repeated breath holding that they kind of stretch it out, but not, not like, it's not like 10 times as big or, or, or it's like, you know, 20% bigger or whatever. And there are some, even some very petite, like, you know, five foot two tiny people who can hold their breath for seven or eight minutes. So they're physical, they're physically elite by a little bit, but what really sets them apart is the ability is their mental for, for, for breath holders and free divers, at least what really sets them apart is the, the mental aspect of being able to 
and then there's there's breathing techniques too. Like there's there's in terms of how you breathe in and stuff. But the fundamental task is learning to to not start breathing once those involuntary breathing movements starts, and that's that's mental, not physical. Yeah, and I think actually the most can be said uh, about most uh, activities or or sports. I mean, if you look at, uh, I was watching some golf on the weekend, and um, I mean, most of these folks are similar size, similar builds. I mean, there's a couple of people that are a little bigger, a little bit stronger, or a little bit shorter, a little bit stockier, but there, there's no one that's like a, a, a freak of nature. And they all drive the ball, the ball about the same, give or take a 20 yards. And then, but again, it goes back to who's making the putts and who's making the, you know, the shots when they need to. And a lot of that is mental. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's yeah, it's exactly. You know, you look at football players and basketball players, and you're like, well, it, it doesn't matter how powerful my mind is. I, I could never compete with a guy who's six foot ten or weighs three hundred pounds and can run, you know, a forty yard dash in four seconds. Uh, but other sport, you know, the, the mind matters in those sports for sure. But it's not as obvious because the, their physical traits are so unusual. But yeah, you're right. You look at something like golf. I mean, performance on the green is crucial, and and putting there's essentially no physical that's it's almost like chess yeah the 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 physical act of putting takes no nothing special it putting is is a is a a mental challenge it it really is yeah Yeah, and i mean but even if you go and i'm reading uh, terry cruz's biography right now Uh, i don't for most people i don't know terry cruz former nfl player turned actor and he even talks about yes he's obviously big and strong but when you're in that realm everyone's big and strong. So what's going to set you apart? Uh, you know, the, the NFL Combine's got 400 uh, people to come out to it every year, and then only, you know, 100 and, or 200 and some get drafted. So there's always at the at the top of the sport, and the same thing in running, you're always going to have some people that run 13, 14-minute 5Ks. So what, the difference, uh, what makes the difference between, you know, a 13-30 5K and a 13-25K? It's probably not the size of their shoe or the size of their legs or it's a lot of it is, I think is mental. Yeah. And that gets at something that's, it's important. I mean, one of the questions I've been asked a lot in, in, in the wake of this book is, okay, so how much of success in endurance sports is physical and how much is mental? And, and what I say is, well, it depends on what population you're looking at. Cause if you, if you ask me like, uh, you know, take a so say you take a random sample of the population. You know, hundred hundred people drawn from the phone book from Canada, and you say, let's see, who who do you think is going to be fastest? How are you going to figure that out? Well, I'd say, hey, let's let's take them to a lab. We'll run their VO2 max and their lactate threshold and their running economy, and I will be able to tell you with you know, so in other words, so we're treating them just like they're nothing but machines. Where it's like we're measuring the size of their gas tank and and the, you know how many cylinders the, the their their engine has. And I, I'll be able to tell you pretty accurately what the order of finish would be in a marathon among those 100 people. Because in that diverse population, the physical is dominant. It's 99% physical. The mental is, is only a very small component. But when you start to look at a, at a homogeneous population, so if you look at Olympic athletes, then those same lab tests tell you almost nothing. Because everyone who makes it to that level has... They, they have that minimum threshold of they have a very good VO2 max, very good lactate threshold, very good running economy. Um, and, the, and the labs, the, the tests no longer tell you who's going to win. And at that point, 
the, you know, there's, there are subtle differences physically, but the, the, that's where the mental component is much, much, much greater. It's who's, who's a better racer, who can dig deeper is, is going to what's be what's determines who's the gold medalist and who's the, you know, 11th placer. And then to take that a step further, if you say, okay, well, forget about athletes. What about when I'm pushing my own personal limits? Well, you know, I can, I can run, you know, a 5k one week and then I can run another one a couple of weeks later, another one a couple of weeks later. My fitness and my physique is not really changing much in, you know, in those two weeks. And yet I'll have different times, you know, uh, each time I run the 5k and there it's, it's again, in terms of pushing my personal limits, the mental becomes a much greater factor. If I, if on any given day, the degree to which I approach my physical limits has a ton to do with how well I performed mentally. Very, very well put. And I think that's uh, something that we overlook a lot when we're, um, if we're training for a race or if you're going through life, we're like, oh, this is my limit. It's always my limit. As opposed to like, you know, looking at different factors. You mentioned, I mean, sleep, uh, nutrition, stress. These are all things that affect us in our day to day. And a lot of times we don't really pay attention to that. Uh, unless you're at the, the world-class athlete stage and your job is to pay attention to those things. Yeah. And it's interesting in that things like sleep and, and stress, you can, you can quantify how those affect the body. I mean, you're going to be physically tired if you don't sleep well and, and, and stress can, can wear you down physically too. But what we sometimes forget is those things have an effect on your brain too. And, and some of the studies I talk about in the book, I think are really interesting in that they show that just having to focus on something, doing a fairly simple cognitive task for 90 minutes, even you're just sitting at a desk, so it's not physically demanding, will reduce your physical endurance. Uh, and it's not because anything has changed below the neck. It's because your ability to stay focused on the task of, of, uh, of you know, keeping your finger in the flame as long as possible. You, once you've lo- you lose a little bit of that focus, your performance changes. And that's, it's like you said, all these, all these factors, whether it's, uh, you know, sleep or stress or just, having a lot going on at work or, or socially or in person, your personal life, all these things pl- combine with the, the, the pure physical things, like whether you have eaten enough and whether you're hydrated and all that stuff to, to dictate your limits on that given day. Yeah. Let's, um, let's look at the, the, the big, the big stuff in the book. What, what are some of the, the key measures that you're looking to get out of and into the population? They, and the good thing is now it's getting picked up a lot so that, uh, those are, will be kind of hopefully everywhere in a few years. But if you had to boil it down to a couple of key messages from the book, what, what would they be? Yeah, I think the, the first big one is to understand that limits that feel physical to you, like if you're on a treadmill, you set, you, you press the button and you decide to go till you're going to stop and to go till you can't, that what feels like an end point, what feels like you've reached as far as your body can go is almost never a true physical limit it's almost always not that your muscles can't keep going any further it's it's that your brain is has for some reason or in some way decided that your muscles shouldn't go further now that doesn't mean that it's all in your head and it's easy to you can just decide to keep going further i mean your brain is a part of your body and and your brain's limits are as real as your body's limits but it is I think it's a kind of a powerful message to keep in mind that when you when you feel like you've hit the limit, it's not that you you're, you physically are completely, you know, if a lion jumped out from behind the tree, you would instead of chasing you, you would find that your muscles can still go. And so knowing that, I think, helps 
helps to sort of uh, spur you to be able to keep fighting and keep pushing a little harder and a little longer when you do start to approach those limits and kind of maybe push into that gray area. So, so just that idea that physical limits are not as absolute as they feel is one thing. And then the second point is that there are things you can do systematically to, to, to alter those limits, uh, to, and to, and none of them are sort of instant miracle fixes where you're, you're going to get twice as fast overnight. They're, they're difficult and they're, they're, they're gradual and they're incremental, but things like being aware of the internal monologue in your head of if you're, if you're, t- if, if you start with the assumption or if you start with, if you, if you take one of the conclusions of the book, which is that what matters is not so much how you're, you know, what's going on in your legs. What matters is how your brain interprets what's going on in your legs. Well, if you're, if you're in a race and you're, and you're telling yourself, this is terrible. I'm, I'm, this hurts so much. I'm, uh, you know, oops, I did it again. I went up too hard. This is hurts. I can't do this. You're, you're influencing how your brain interprets those signals from the rest of your body. And you're, you're, you're subtly making the, the task feel harder than it, than it needs to. And that's going to ultimately make you quit or slow down sooner than you need to. And if you can systematically identify the kinds of things that you say to yourself uh, in stressful situations, whether it's a race or before a big presentation at work or, or, or whatever the case may be, uh, then you can think of alternatives, things that you can say that are, are more encouraging. And that, and that fat, fascinatingly to me, there have been some really good rigorous studies in the last couple of years that show that this kind of approach, that changing your self-talk uh, improves your performance, and it also enhances your ability to dig into your physical physiological reserves measurably. So, if you're exercising in the heat, for example, after you've been trained in self-talk, you're able to push until your core temperature is about half a degree higher. Uh, so, you're you're actually seeing physical changes as a result of changing your internal monologue. That's uh, that's pretty cool stuff, and I, I like how you take it. Like, obviously, uh, there's a huge. Uh, applications for high performance athletes and uh but you're also talking about everyday um you know examples like working on a paper or working on an article or or doing daily chores that don't obviously doesn't seem like you're going to the olympics for doing dishes but that's also part of life and it's part of your limits whatever however you define those limits so it's cool that you, you kind of provide a little bit of a uh for the average joe that Probably none of us, or most of us, are not going to go to the Olympics. There's still something that we can take from this book and, and make it real. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I talked, I said before that my sort of my conception of endurance kind of expanded as I was writing this book, and I think one of the things that that really kind of on a on a maybe subconscious level played into the writing of the book is that I had I had two kids while writing this book. So I had my oldest just turned four. So that I was working on the book proposal when she was born. And my youngest is, uh, she's one or almost, she's going to turn two next month. And so she, she was born while I was writing the actual book. And it's like, I was writing about, you know, uh, mountain climbers and, and runners, but you, you have a couple of, you know, a newborn and a toddler at home, uh, you spend a lot of late nights and you're, you're, you're doing a lot and you're still trying to write a book. All of a sudden, you know, endurance seems like a much broader concept. And like I said before, the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop, man, I had the mounting desire to stop, you know, all the time when, <laughs> after having the, having the kids. And I, and I, and again, it was this sort of realization that 
the same things that apply in running a marathon. If I'm telling myself this sucks, uh, this is so hard, I'm making the marathon harder for myself. And the same, you know, the same thing is too at 3 a.m. with a with a crying baby. You know, I mean, uh, look, obviously at times it does suck, but it, if you're if you're constantly telling yourself how bad things are, it just it just makes things worse. And 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 if you can re, you know reframe your approach and look for the positives and 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 remind yourself what you're capable of, uh, it, it makes. Uh, it makes all these things in, in, in the general more lifestyle context. I think it, it, it has some, some power. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I think those are, are cool things that we all kind of go through our own races or adventures, however you find them. And yeah, I mean, uh, having kids is, is part of it and work and life balance and all that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, um, I think it's the mental aspect. I think we're finding out more and more these days that the mental aspect is huge. Uh, whether you're doing dishes mindfully or running a hard 5k, it's, uh, it's all, it's all, all the fun. I know you're, uh, you're a busy gentleman and especially now that you're, uh, you're a, uh, New York Times bestselling author, uh, we're, <laughs> we're, we're very uh, grateful for, uh, for your time and, um, and thank you for sharing all this great wisdom that you've kind of acquired over the last 10 years and more. Uh, one more question before you go. We've already talked about what wellness means to you in the first part, but now it'd be nice to know anything wellness related that you're working on, any cool studies that you that you're diving into for upcoming column or or upcoming book. Sure. Well, I mean, the the, the truth is, right, you, you know, I, I'm st- I, I'm just I'm trying to figure out what comes next for me right now in the in the wake of the book. So. I don't have any big projects on the go. The, the column that I'm going to sit down and, and, and work on, uh, you know, when I when we uh, when we end this call, is about caffeine and exploring some of the the uh, the different the differences in response based on individual genotype. How, so, you know, some people, for most people, caffeine is the most reliable per- performance enhancing substance uh, for sports. But th- there's now evidence that for some people, it actually can be counterproductive. Uh, depending on how quickly they metabolize caffeine. So it's a kind of re-examination of the idea that caffeine is, is a booster for everyone. Um, so I, to me, that's an interesting thing. So I'm, I, there's a, I, uh, there's a paper coming out later this week that I'm going to be, uh, going to be writing about. That's awesome. I mean, uh, that's probably what's held me back my whole life because I've been drinking too much caffeine and I could have been a world-class runner and I didn't know it. (laughs) Exactly. I'll, I'll blame it on that. Um, Again, thank you so much for uh, for your time. I'll link to the uh, New York Times bestselling uh, book in uh, in the show notes, and uh, we look forward to seeing some of your stuff in Outside and Global Mail and wherever uh, you publish. And I'll link to your to your website and the, and the Twitter where you uh, you really uh, share some some good stuff. So again, thank you for for all the research that you do. So we don't have to do it; we can just sit down with a cup of coffee and uh, and read all that good stuff. Well, thanks. Thanks for the conversation, Eric. And thanks for mentioning uh, New York Times bestselling so many times. It, uh, it make, gives me a nice warm feeling inside. You've been listening to Wellness Wednesdays. I am your host, Eric Collard. Until next week, be well. Be well.